Hello and welcome to We Never Met, the podcast where I have interesting strangers on every single week. Today we're virtually um, meeting each other. Uh, if you want to introduce yourself real quick here. Sure. My name is uh, Justin Perkins from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And what do you say, like, what do people know you for? What would people know you most for? Probably for mastering music. Um, I used to do some recording and mixing uh, back in the day and for the last, I'd say, 10 years now, I've been strictly mastering music. So, and the, the thing with mastering is it, it's a fairly fast-paced process, so I get to work with a lot of bands and artists. Um, you know, over the course of a year, I do quite a lot of projects because it doesn't take as long as, say, recording and mixing. Yeah, so what would you say, because you also have experience mixing and things like that, what's like the... Um, I guess time allotment from mixing compared to mastering is it like a ton more time is taken? I would, I would say yeah. I mean, I I can comfortably master an album in one day. So um, you compare that to recording and mixing. You know, you can spend days or weeks recording an album. Well, certainly days. Uh, some people do it over the course of a few weeks, and then mixing. You know, if yeah. you're talking about a typical pop rock song with a lot of instruments. You know, if, if you can mix two to three songs a day, that's kind of cruising along. Mm. So when you compare that to being able to master a full album in a day without even really having to rush or, or you know, that's a that's a, a comfortable day is doing a whole album. So wow. that's kind of the trade-off is, is uh, the time thing. You know, of course, when I send it out, there can be revisions that take anywhere from a few minutes to half an hour to an hour, you know, mm -hmm. a few days later, but... The bulk of the work is easily done in a day. And then with people doing singles and EPs more, you know, I may do two EPs in a day or a bunch of singles. So wow. I just get to interact with a lot more clients and, and bands and artists than, than, I, than a uh, mixing and recording person would. Yeah. And for people who don't really know um, much about mastering and like the art of mastering and what you do when you master, um, what to you drew you to that specific part of music production in general? Well, I think, you know, the attention to detail that it requires and the fact that it was kind of an unknown. I mean, when I started getting interested in music and even when I was doing re recording and mixing, I didn't really know what mastering was. You know, I heard the term and I knew that it was the last part of the process and it can be really important. Um, but I think, you know, I was curious about what it was and and why it was so different. And it is a very detailed job. And I think, you know, as I got older, I was just getting a little burned out on spending 10, 15-hour days back-to-back -back in, the, in the studio with a group of people. Mm -hmm. uh, that can kind of wear you out uh, mentally and, and, uh, and in other ways as well. And, um, the, you know, the thing with when bands come in to record, it's like their fun go time. It's like their mm -hmm. party time. They, they can go long periods of time and some of them are happy to get away from their jobs or their, their kids or what, whatnot and just have a great time. And I totally understand that. But to be the person that's there every day, you know, sure. you, you can't sustain that um, every day. At least I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do... I mean, I, I certainly did a lot of back-to-back 15-hour -back days, uh, you know, sometimes overnight and stuff like that. But as I got a little older, um, I just didn't want to be stuck doing that forever um, mm -hmm. because, you know, you need – it's hard to run a business when you're, you know, kind of locked into a recording session all day mm -hmm. and people need your attention. You know, the bass player wants to check out 
his bass part on this song and see if he made a mistake and the keyboard player has an idea you know and they can go i'll go off and take their breaks and be like okay i'm gonna go run down the street and get a bite to eat or mm-hmm. sure take a, take a little walk outside but the recording person is just getting constantly bombarded with uh stuff unless you take a like you know and and i would do this too like okay we're all taking a break we're getting out of here closing yeah. the door but anyways it was just um it can be really taxing on a person to just be at it um, and you know there's some people that just mix now and that's kind of nice for them because they can do it remotely mm-hmm. especially with the current situation we're all yeah. in there's a lot of remote mixing happening um so that's kind of what drew me to mastering too is i like the independent schedule of yeah. just um working usually i work by myself and uh i can kind of pick which projects i work on that day i have to be sensitive to deadlines but sure um, basically it, it allows me to take breaks and catch up on emails and take care of non-musical business stuff that needs to happen throughout the day yeah and and in turn, that gives my ears a break too, so I can rest my ears. And, and yeah. so for me, it works really well. I just like the schedule and flow of it all. Yeah. And so you talked about it a little bit there at the beginning. Um, if you were going to describe like what mastering is to someone who didn't know, um, and you were like maybe even like pitching them how why you should get your album or your music or your audio track mastered, what would you say to them? Well, it's basically, you know, the last step for any creative changes. Um, and it then it transitions into more of a quality control and technical job where it's making sure everything is formatted correctly and optimized, you know, to sound as good as possible on all types of playback systems and all types of, stre- you know, streaming services, vinyl, CD. There's a lot of things that um, you can optimize. And it's not like I have to do five different masters, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's things to consider. But, you know, to really um, kind of simplify it, it's basically like framing the picture. Mm. You know, the mixing and recording is like painting or drawing the picture, um, adding the colors and the elements that are what the end person is going to see. Uh, mastering is not like framing it where it's like, okay, we can we can trim some stuff off the edge here. And it's a little bit like color correction mm. for video or for photography where it's like, let's highlight this part of it or let's... Uh, reduce some brightness in this part of the picture Mm -hmm. you know maybe we can make this part of the picture more in focus and this other part over here can be a little blurrier so it's a lot like framing Mm -hmm. and color correction and photoshop for for audio Um, and it's basically um, working with just the stereo mix so i can't necessarily turn the vocals up in Mm -hmm. mastering i can't turn the snare drum up I can't really add effects to the keyboards and mastering. You know, sure. all that stuff is happening in the mix process where the, the mix engineer has access to each individual track. Mm-hmm. You know, they have isolated keyboard track, isolated vocals, isolated backing vocals. When I get songs to master, it's just the stereo mix. So it's in a real basic sense, it's what you can do kind of almost on your car stereo. You can turn the treble up. But that turns the the high end up across everything. So it might mm-hmm. improve the vocal sound, but it might make the um, drums and cymbals too bright. So you mm-hmm. have to be very careful because um, everything that you do, you know, can affect other things in the in the song. So it's uh, it's best if you love your mix and then you send it to mastering and then you love it more than you ever knew you could, mm-hmm. rather than thinking of mastering as a fixing process. And sure. there's starting to be some tools that allow 
a little bit more fixing than ever before, but you know, you shouldn't send it to mastering to save it. You know, I, I mm -hmm. even tell my, my students at the school, like when, when we start the mastering program, I would much rather listen to a song that was mixed by a, a, a world-class mix engineer and not mastered than mixed by a very amateur or new person and was mastered by the best mastering person in the world because mm -hmm. they can only do so much with that mix. So mixing, I think, is more important to the overall sound and then mastering is really that final, you know, anywhere from 20 to 10. You know, sometimes, you know, the best mixes need very little mastering mm -hmm. and the best, uh, and sometimes stuff needs a little more. And then there's also the song to song um, interaction. You know, if you have an album, you know, maybe three songs have a little too much low end. So you use some EQ to make the low end fit better with the rest of the song. So sure. it's also thinking about EPs and albums as a group. So it's a cohesive listening experience. Um, yeah. So the listener is not tempted to adjust their playback level or their EQ from song to song, you know, so everything yeah. sounds like a group. And that's a whole nother challenge. Sometimes it's um, easy if, if, you know, if you get a band that goes to a studio for a few days, they record everything in one basically chunk and it's all done by the same person. A lot of times what works for one song, for the most part, works for a lot of the songs. So it's once you get one song dialed in, the rest come pretty quickly. Um, but sometimes, you know, artists work with this producer and that producer and this mm. one they did on their home setup by themselves. Yeah. So the mastering person's job is to tie all the songs together and say, what, what, how loud should it be? And are there songs that should be not as loud? You know, if it's a soft ballad or an interlude, maybe that needs to sit a little lower in level. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's just really kind of detailed stuff. I, I admit that it's not as fun as, it's probably not as fun for most people as music production, you know, where you're mm. coming up with lyrics and effects and layering stuff. I mean, I think that's what a lot of audio people gravitate towards too, because you're right. really building something and, and mastering. It's like, it's a, you're taking a step back from all that and saying, how does this all working together? Right. Right. And how's it going to sound on earbuds? How's it going to sound on a Bluetooth speaker? Oh, sure. How's it going to sound on a really nice, huge sound system and anything in between? I think you mentioned it a little bit before, but um, the amount of work you do, you do a ton of different mastering projects and with a ton of different bands and artists. Like, is there a point where it's hard to, I guess, because you talked about, you know, giving your ears a break and stepping away. Is it hard not to bring bias to projects or like, you know, you hear stuff so much over and over again, different projects, it's hard, like get them confused and stuff. Is it, is it, is that a tough process? It is because, you know, projects come in and out of here very quickly, you know, right. um, if a project goes smoothly, that means I've listened to it for about a day and then mm -hmm. um, I send it out and it gets approved usually on the first or second version. So I, I spend... I kind of like turbo listen to it for how long I'm working on it. And then I often don't get a chance to hear it until it's out in the world. Mm. And just because of the nature of time, I don't have time to listen to everything I've mastered for right. fun, for casual listening. So I try to, you know, some of the notable projects I try to, you know, sometimes I'll listen to them. And, and honestly, sometimes when I do go back and listen to them, that's when I can start listening to the lyrics and really mm. understanding like wow, this is a, this was a really good record. Right. Uh, when I was working on it, I was a little bit more in technician mode. Sure. Just making sure that it um, translates well and whatnot. And then 
you know, when it finally comes out on Apple Music or Tidal, I can just listen to it as a listener and right. one, not be tempted to adjust anything because it's already released. And two, uh, you know, I'm just listening to it while I'm doing stuff around the house. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it is kind of a challenge sometimes. Um, it is interesting to hear that, though, because... You know, when you're working on them, I, I guess, yeah, you wouldn't even think about the fact that sometimes you don't even like intake the lyrics because you're just like looking for certain things in songs. And, you yeah, know, I'm very much listening to, you know, frequencies and interaction. How's the bass drum interacting with the bass instrument? The lyrics are honestly pretty far down on the list of what I have time to absorb. Sure. Um, obviously, I'm aware of when the chorus hits and things like that, but, um, it is a challenge to listen as a, a listener. And, um, you know, I wish, I wish there was more time for that. And, uh, is there ever projects where you have to step away because you don't, I guess you've done so much. Are there ever projects that like stump you? Like, I don't even, I, what should I do with this? Or, you know, do you pretty much know based on the amount of volume that you've done so far? Yeah, I'm pretty comfortable. You know, and the other thing that goes back to your last question too, is the way that you're able to make these decisions is, you know, I'm listening in a really nice, um, well-treated room that's very, mm -hmm. you know, flat and accurate. So it's very easy for me to know if something has too much low end or if it's too distorted or if it has too much high end and things like that, where, you know, a lot of home setups and, and even some mixing studios, you know, their monitoring is not necessarily accurate. You know, mm -hmm. maybe the engineer is used to it, but they're not always sure how it's going to translate out to the real world, you know, if, if it sure. does have too much bass or if there's a problem they missed. And the cool thing with mastering is you're kind of, and the reason why I think I like to work so quickly is I only get one chance to hear it for the first time. So when I put that song on, I want to know right away, you know, does it feel too muddy? Does it feel too bright? Does it feel too thin? You know, these are things that the listener is going to catch on to right away. And mm -hmm. once you start listening to it over and over, um, and even if something's not great, it can start to sound okay. And I think that's where mix engineers fall into a little bit of a trap because if you've been mixing the same song for five hours in your room, you're just, your brain's just going to start to accept what it sounds like mm -hmm. and think that it's okay. And you may go down the wrong path, even though maybe in your room on that day, it sounds okay. You know, when you uh, take it, you know, the, the classic thing is the car test, you know, take it out to your car because mm. you listen to a lot of music in your car. Um, you may be surprised when you get to your car that um, it sounds way off, you know, the, mm. it's really boomy. So anyways, the mastering room is designed to just sound really flat um, and neutral and accurate. And again, I work quickly because I only get that one time to hear it for the first time. And I don't want to listen to it the same song for the entire day because it'll start to sound good to me as well so yeah i'm yeah. kind of handing it off to the consumer world so i want to know what people are going to what people's first instincts are going to be yeah that's that's really interesting you have so much knowledge i think because you've done so much in the music industry i mean we haven't even talked about you used to be a, tour, a touring musician um and so going way way back before you even got into mastering and mixing um, what was your first musical experience like? What were you, was it playing an instrument? Was it just purchasing a song that got you interested in, in the music industry? What was the first sort of, I guess, jump into 
music that you had? Yeah, well, you know, my my dad was always into music when I was growing up, and he had a guitar around the house, but he was left-handed, so I couldn't really play it because I'm right-handed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could I could figure out a couple of basic chords upside sure. down. But yeah, I also didn't know that that was upside down because that's all I knew. But eventually, you know, in fifth grade, I had this teacher, and he was um, really into music, particularly like the Beatles and David Bowie. And every Friday, if you were a good student, you got to uh, go in his classroom, and he would put the lyrics on the overhead projector, and s- the whole class would sing these songs. And mm-hmm. just being able to get an up-close view of somebody playing the guitar, you know, I was five to ten feet away from him watching his fingers and, mm-hmm. and how there, a lot of the chords were the same, just different order and stuff like that. And that just really got me interested in wanting to p- play the guitar. You know, mm-hmm. at, at some point my dad or my parents got me this really cheap little guitar um, Yeah, that was right-handed that I could at least learn some chords. And c- it kind of grew from there. And then, you know, I was at that age, I think I was in fifth grade when Nevermind by Nirvana came out. And that just hit me at the right time because prior to that, music was kind of ridiculous. Like coming out of the 80s, all those sounds were so unobtainable by the average fifth grader. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Without, you know, there's no computers back then. Right. It was like how, you know, I, I listened to it. Um, you know, I remember one of the first cassettes I bought was In Excess Kick. Mm. I don't know how, if, if you're familiar yeah. with that. Yeah, I am. Um, that was the first time I remember going into a store and being like, I want this piece of music i want to buy this with like right lawn mowing money or whatever anyways but yeah. whenever but as much as i love that the sounds were pretty exotic i would say you know a lot of synthesized stuff that mm-hmm. i just didn't it didn't even cross my mind to try to do and i was a little young but when Nevermind came out it was just so pure and raw like okay i mm-hmm. could identify that that was a guitar <laughs> and that was drums and this guy screaming yeah. it's like maybe we could do this you know Obviously, they were an amazing band, but it 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 opened up this door of being attainable. And then, sure. not not long after that, Green Day hit, which was mm-hmm. kind of similar, you know, a little more uh, positive, upbeat uh, music, sure. but same concept, you know, drums, bass, guitar, really simple. Mm-hmm. And me and my friends, we just took that and ran with it, and we just learned how to do our own band. And um, so, what was that band? What was the first band you you started? Oh, well, the first one. It was called Amazing Larry, and okay. we got that name from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a great name. That movie. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, but it was just us trying to sound like Nirvana. You okay. know, we'd do boombox recordings, and you know, eventually we got to a point in high school where we made a CD. Oh. And I didn't actually record that CD, but I was doing some. I somehow took the reins of recording our demos and stuff mm-hmm. in our drummer's basement, and eventually in my dad's basement. So I. I wasn't even like an electronics nerd or anything. I didn't, you know, I, I knew some people that loved to take things apart and put them mm, back together. Sure. Um, I was not that person. But when the guy dropped off the the recording unit, I guess I paid the most attention mm-hmm. and was running the ship. And then when our friends' bands heard these recordings, you know, they said, hey, can you do our recording? Can, can you record us? And I was like, I guess I could. You know, yeah. I never, this is, wasn't really my intention. It just all kind of happened very naturally. You know, there mm-hmm. wasn't any one moment where I said, I'm going to do this. It was just a really slow progression of people asking me to record them. And mm-hmm. that led me to working at an actual studio up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. You know, I got out of my dad's basement and was recording in, 
you know, a prop, what I would call a proper studio where mm -hmm. bands were calling to come in and record um, their stuff. Yeah. And what, what, so were you living in Green Bay at the time? Obviously you were working there. No, well, I, I'm, I was born and raised in Nina, Wisconsin, which is okay. about 40 minutes south of mm -hmm. Green Bay. Sure. Yeah. Just a few minutes south of Appleton. And uh, so, no, I always drove up there. I never, you know, Green Bay at the time didn't inspire me to move there. Sure. I would just drive up there um, and sometimes I would stay overnight. You know, there was a shower there and stuff right. like that. And this is, you know, I remember having to go to the library to check my email and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was just before, it was before smartphones, and um, so I never moved to Green Bay. I just commuted and stayed okay. overnight and things like that. Well, so while you were working at that studio, were you also still in like pursuing music and bands and things like that? Yeah, I had a we had I was in a couple bands, and uh, they were all, all very similar, to be honest with you. Okay, um, you know, we we changed drummers a couple, you know, different drummers, but it was always me and a, one other guy named Tim Schweiger basically um, doing stuff and mm -hmm. uh, so yeah I was still doing bands but it became pretty apparent that um, I could more easily make a living recording bands than mm -hmm. playing out I don't think I gave it a hundred percent on the touring and music side you know I sure you know, we did our albums and people some people liked them and uh, we one of the bands had a record deal on lookout records mm -hmm. which was Green Day's first record label before they took off and oh wow a lot of it's kind of a, a fairly well-known pop punk record label so mm -hmm. we thought that was kind of a, a milestone and you know we did that for a little bit i didn't i didn't love touring mm. um for a few reasons but we you know we could have tried harder but nothing really happened there but i was just getting a lot of calls to record other bands and that was keeping me really busy and eventually that was my full-time job yeah, you know, I I would have part time jobs here and there to fill in the time um, in the early two thousands, but eventually those got in the way yeah. of the music. So I just said, hey, I can I think I can do this full time. Yeah, and you talked about it a little bit there. Um, when did you decide to go? I guess jump in full time into sort of recording, uh, mixing, mastering, and, and that. Probably it started to transition around the early 2000s, maybe okay. 2004, um, you know, and I was still playing in bands for a while after that, but I had to be a little more selective of how much time I spent away from the studio. And right. I, at some point it was like, oh, I'm not going to just start a band, start a band just to ha for, for fun. It was mm -hmm. more like this band that I really liked um, growing up as a kid needs a bass player. And I, you know, yeah. I don't want to say no to that because that would... You know, it's kind. Of, at one point, that would have been like an unheard of thing, and here right. I am getting the chance to do that. And luckily, those kind of things are. It wasn't necessarily full time work. It was like long weekends here and there. Mm -hmm. It was. I, it was a good balance actually. So, um, early two thousands, I just started taking it more seriously. I ended up moving to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, to work at Smart Studios, mm -hmm. which is interestingly where. Um, the guy that recorded and produced, never mind, he owned it. Oh, uh, really? But his name was Butch Vig, and uh, you know they did never mind in L.A., um, but Nirvana had recorded at Smart Studios um, some demos and, and oh. whatnot. Um, so it has a lot of history. So yeah. I, I ended up working there for um, a few years. Um, I was technically on staff, but it wasn't like a forty-hour a week gig. It was 
you can bring in your own projects. Mm. And when we have an overflow of work, you know, we're going to pass that on to you. There was another engineer that was there longer than me or two of them really. Mm -hmm. Um, So they would kind of get first call on like the projects. But if it got real busy, I was kind of the backup, backup um, staff engineer, but also bringing in my own clients to to record and work at Smart Studios. So um, that was, uh, but I could also tell that, you know, this is mid 2000s now that, you know, the music industry, some people consider that it crashed, you know, kind of with the economy in 2008 or nine, mm-hmm. because iTunes took over and just p- people weren't really buying music. So recording budgets went away and I could see that people were really just coming in to maybe record the drums mm. and then they would take it home and do the rest, which is understandable. You could do pretty good recordings at home at that point. Um, yeah. It was just hard to capture a full drum set um, in a home studio. So I could kind of see the writing on the wall that this studio is probably not going to be around forever. And mm-hmm. I should think of something else to do. And so what did you decide to transition to at that point? Well, I didn't decide to transition to mastering, but I did decide to move to Milwaukee, which is okay. where I still live. Yep. And uh, you know, I, I linked up with a few studios here. I would rent out their space. You know, I'd say, hey, can I rent your studio for a day or a few days? Uh, odds and ends. You know, still playing live music at this point uh, when when the when the situation was right. But mm-hmm. eventually, there was a mastering studio in town here called Mastermind. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy named Trevor Sadler ran it, and about two thousand nine, he said he called me, or t- I don't know what he did exactly. It might have been an email, but basically said he was moving to the East Coast. Mm-hmm. didn't want to sell his building and he knew that I was getting a little bit more into mastering um, and said, hey, do you, you know, do you want to rent my studio? And it was kind of a perfect situation because, you know, he took all his equipment with him, obviously, but the room was already built out, you know, it had good acoustic treatment. It was sure. designed to be a mastering room or, or a really good mixing room. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a turning point for me, for sure, because then I, I started to take mastering more seriously at okay. that point. I invested in some equipment that's specific to mastering and just being in that room, you know, it was kind of like now for some people, not everyone, I was not, I was like the new mastering guy now because I was in Mm -hmm. the room where the mastering used to happen. And now I'm there, even though it was, you know, so much of it is the person, you know, Um, it's Mm -hmm. not like uh, trying to think of an example, Um, but you know, it's the person doing the work that really is the value Right, um, but it was nice to have sort of that base baseline of being being known as a mastering room, yeah, and me being attempting to do mastering full time. So it was a ni- that was a nice, um, a really nice situation to be in. Right. Is there any highlights you have specifically that you think back to um, when you were like touring and playing in bands more that you really are proud of or that you think back of and that you just really loved that really it's more of the whole concept overall i mean after i stopped being in bands that i was kind of creatively part of you know writing the songs and singing lead vocals you know i joined there was a pretty active band in the 2000s called blue heels i played with bass with them a lot it was and at that point it was nice to just jump into an existing project Mm -hmm. the songs were written i just had to play bass i mean it felt like uh vacation or something you know yeah all I have to do is play the bass and that's it. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> and then not long after that, um, this um, 
fairly well-known punk band called Screeching Weasel had reformed and needed a bass player, and mm -hmm. almost anyone that plays bass has been in that band. But um, <laughs> you know, I did that for a few years. That was fun. That was great because there was a lot of fly-out shows. You know, there was no loading of vans oh, or sure. long drives. It was usually fly here. Um, there was always like a rental bass amp already on stage. I just plug in, mm -hmm. um, bring my bass, that kind of thing. That was a lot of fun. And those shows were usually sold out, you know, a thousand people or so. And with that band, you know, they didn't tour much when they were most kind of in their prime. Sure. They were actually known for not touring. So a lot of people never thought they would get to see this band. And it was just fun to see people having one of the best nights of their life, you know, yeah. singing along to all the words. Because, you know, when I was in high school, I never thought I would see this band. You know, I knew I, yeah. I liked their albums, um, but they just didn't tour. They didn't have to, I guess. I, hmm. I don't know. But anyways, so playing in that was fun. So it's more of the overall thing. Right. Um, after that, I played in a band called Bash and Pop, which is um, the bass player of one of my all-time favorite bands, uh, The Replacements. He, after they broke up, he, it's basically a solo album, but he didn't want to call it his name. So he mm. came up with the band name. It's actually one of my favorite sounding albums and I like the song. So got a chance to work with him. And the next thing you know, I'm playing bass in that band. So that was fun too. Mm -hmm. um, again, playing songs that, are just kind of ingrained in my brain, you know. It was yeah. also, especially with Screeching Weasel, it was super easy to jump in because I knew all the songs right. just from listening to them. I didn't, you know, didn't really have to practice much um, just because I knew how the arrangements, you know, a couple of times you'd have to figure out like a, a tricky part here and there, but right. all the arrangements were really baked into my head um, as far as how the songs go. So that was, that made it really easy and fun to jump into. Yeah, that's that has to be an interesting experience, though, listening to these bands and being a fan of them and then entering them later in life. Like, what was your initial reaction to to playing with them? Was it just were you just trying to like nonchalantly? Because, I mean, you said you knew all these songs and you love these bands. I'm sure it was an interesting experience to actually play with them eventually. Yeah, it's interesting to see kind of on the ground level how things operate and uh and things like that. But honestly, I was just trying to take it all in and, and right. do my best work. So I, I didn't get too much time to analyze it. It was, you know, I don't want to d diminish it, but it was also a job. And right. it wasn't a hard job. It was an amazing job. But I was just trying to do my best, you mm -hmm. know. And I was hired or picked or chosen because of my skill level. And I didn't mm -hmm. want to do anything that was going to detract from that. Like if I got too excited about it and forgot right. how to play the song well that's <laughs> right. embarrassing that'd be bad yeah so you just have you gotta just gotta not think about it um it's not a time to try anything new or different i just wanted to do what i knew how to do and right um not screw it up yeah and we talked about mastering a little bit and you starting to do mastering um at the milwaukee studio was that something that you had to sort of were you just so interested in it that you were like teaching yourself it? It's one of those things where you're always learning, um, especially as things evolve, you know, just little things like how streaming services adjust the levels now mm. by default. You know, when you install Spotify on your phone or a computer, there's a setting that sets all the songs to the same level. And that's right. great for the listener. It confuses bands and artists about why is their song different than what they signed off on. Yeah. But anyway, going back, you know, I just eased into it slowly because... Again, we were in that period of time where 
music wasn't selling as much anymore. Streaming was taking over. iTunes was taking over. Um, so I ended up on some of these smaller budget projects being the mastering person. And mm. to some degree, I regret that on some projects because um, they were um, what I would call maybe higher level projects that I wish would have gotten mastered by a professional at the time instead of me mixing it and mastering it because mm. um, kind of what I talked about earlier, if you're in a not perfect or not ideal room, you can make mistakes. Sure. In mixing that you just don't catch in mastering because you're in the same room right? on the same set of speakers. Anyway, um, but there were projects where there just wasn't a budget for mastering, so I would be the, quote, mastering engineer. Mm. Uh, and um, to some degree, the mastering engineer is just the last person that touches it before it gets released. Right. Um, but if you really are wanting it to sound best and translate well, you, you hire basically a specialist for that, which is the mastering engineer. And... I just slowly eased into it. You know, I would record, mix, and master albums, and then I would just start to get calls from mastering. People would say, hey, I saw, you know, this is back when CDs still sold a little bit, and there's actual physical copies, but they'd mm -hmm. say, I saw your name and said you mastered this album. I like how it sounds. Can you master my album? And it was, it was a little strange to get calls just for mastering because I right. was not selling myself as a mastering engineer. I was just... A recording person and mm -hmm. I was kind of the mastering engineer kind of by by proxy I guess just because no one else was going to do it um, right but as I got more of those calls I took it more seriously and then that that coincided with um, Trevor asking me if I wanted to rent a space and that was like perfect because I'm like okay yeah, I love a big nice listening room so I can make this transition because it also doubled as a recording room you know i was still recording and mixing a little bit so i could still get that done and uh it meant that i didn't have to rent out studios anymore you know i, I was i figured i was doing enough work where i could justify having my own space and then the end the ultimate goal was to transition to mastering full-time and, and luckily luckily that worked yeah and we, we at the very beginning you, you mentioned this briefly but uh you also teach um audio mastering classes uh is that how is the experience of like teaching i guess what you've learned over the course of you know the the years that you've been in in the music industry to to new people and new people that want to be in it um yeah teaching you know i never i've always liked to help people but there's a difference between helping people and teaching a class yeah and 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 partly that is because some students are a little lost you know I was coming at it from a, an approach of myself where I remember staying up till I would fall asleep try, in my dad's basement trying to get sounds, things mm -hmm. to sound right and practice and just re, repetition, recording right. again and again and again. It would get a little better and a little better and learn what not to do. So I was approaching teaching from that angle of like all these students are just as excited as I was. Oh, sure. Yeah. And they're not, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Some of them are, they don't come to every class. Some of them have to get dropped because they've missed too many classes. Mm -hmm. And there are some really awesome students that are, I can tell that they're going to have some success. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, I wasn't quite ready for that wide of a mixture of there's like one person over here that I would probably hire as an assistant. And on the other end, there's a person that I can't even get to send an email back to see if they still want to be in the class. So it's right. this huge range of, and everyone's has different, scenarios different home life different right there's a lot of factors and so 
understanding that. But when I first started, I, th I thought it was going to be this a little bit of a utopia where everyone's just Everyone dying to learn. It, yeah. And yeah, and it's just not that. But I, I do enjoy the, the process overall. Um, and uh, I got really lucky to teach the mastering class. You know, when I signed up, it was just teaching audio. Mm. And it was actually kind of a good thing because I, I had to learn how to be a teacher and little things down to like where everything is in the mm -hmm. classroom and where everything is in the school. So I, I taught the base, some of the basic classes at first. And then the person that was teaching the mastering class happened to, to uh, retire soon after. So um, yeah, I guess I was a bit of a natural choice because I do that for a living. Although I didn't demand that I did the mastering class. I just, I don't know how it actually fell into place, but it just did. Well, yeah. I think it fell into place because when they first found out that the previous instructor couldn't do it, there was only about two or three weeks before the semester started. Mm -hmm. so it was a little bit of a panic, like, who's going to teach this class? Uh, yeah. So I kind of took it over, and I had to start from scratch. I didn't get any of his materials. Um, oh, wow. So that was a little bit of a challenge, but now it's up and running, and, well, it's actually not up and running because right. of the whole um, coronavirus. But right. the course itself is written out and in place, whereas the first few semesters were a lot of... I was going in very early to figure out what we were going to do that day. Right. And now it's a little bit where I can take a breath and evaluate what the course is and how to improve it. Yeah. I have a nice baseline now. Yeah, and, and being able to teach, has it made you sort of, I guess, look at your mastering on a, like a day-to-day -day level or audio techniques in a different way? Because I know sometimes kids come in with these like fresh ideas that you're like, I didn't even, I didn't really think about that. I got so locked into the way I was doing things. Yeah, I can't think of any specific moments right now, but there have been some eye-opening moments about Maybe I'm not doing it the best way. Mm. Um, but it's also just interesting to see how people that are anywhere from 15 to 20 years younger than me, mm -hmm. ten, I'd say 10 to 20 years younger. Wait. Yeah. Wow. 10 to 20 years younger than me. I'm almost 40. Yeah. Um, so they're probably in there, you know, around 20, 20. They're probably, anyways, um, it's interesting to see how they listen and value music and appreciate mm. music because we're in this period now where some of those students don't remember physical copies. Right. Um, not all of them. You know, there's some that obviously still remember buying CDs and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But there's a portion of them that don't understand physical copies. And I try to explain to them in the world of music, that's how you get more work is someone hears something you did Mm -hmm. They like it, they figure out who did it, and they email that, you know, they get in touch with that person. Right. And it's really hard right now to figure out who's working on stuff. You know, if you go to I Apple Music and listen to a song, you don't know who engineered it. You don't right. know who produced it. Spotify has barely got a little bit of producer information. Um, the streaming service title has the best inform. well... They have the avenue for the best information. They can only display what they have. But mm -hmm. a lot of releases, you can go on there and see who played bass and who played keyboards and who did backing vocals. So that's mm -hmm. pretty cool. But we're in this period now where it's really hard to get credits for your work in right. the digital realm. Um, you know, some bands are still doing vinyl, and that's cool. But for the most part, it's it's a, it's a different world now in terms of getting hired. And I'm trying to explain to the students that that's how, that's how I got 
to where I am now is just my name being on backs of CDs and records. Um, yeah. People say, oh, that person did it and this sounds pretty good. Let's call them. Right. I don't know. How, I mean, there's obviously social media now, but I don't, I don't know how, exactly how that's being navigated with the younger engineers or if it, if it even is. Right. Um, they'll figure out a way because they're smart, but I at least like to put that in their conscience. Like, hey, you know, you got to be mindful of credits. I mean, photographers are great at this. Usually when you see a photo online with an article, the photographer's listed. Right. Um, the movie industry has the IMDB, which I'm sure um, actors have a beef with how accurate it is, but it's way better than what musicians and engineers have f at, for their credits. Um, so basically I try to stress the importance of credits, but also see how that, you know, and it's not just my students, but I, you know, you know, other younger people I've interacted with, whether it's cousins, you know, they're listening to music on YouTube on their mm -hmm. smartphone speaker, right? which just sounds not, you're only getting, you know, that's not how the song could sound. Right, yeah, I mean, right. It's like a really bad way. It's not very representative of the full spectrum of the sound. And right. it's just, but that's how some people consume their music. And it's like, wow, um, you just got to think about these things sometimes. Right. And uh, you also are a voting member for the Recording Academy, which I think is really cool. Um, when did that come about? When did you get that voting ability? Probably about 10 years ago. Um, I was at an event at Radio Milwaukee. I think it was one of their award shows or something. Mm -hmm. And one of the guys from the Chicago chapter, I mean, you know, and it's his job, that's his job is outreach. So he was kind of being a salesperson about it. But sure. basically, you know, said, hey, we're trying to recruit younger people. At the time, I was a younger person. <laughs> and uh, that are actually doing, you know, that have credits that they can um, verify or right. validate or whatever, you know. Um, so, so at the time I had some credits on some major labels and some, some of the bigger independent labels, you know, enough to mm -hmm. get accepted. Right. And, uh, you know, I haven't done it in a while, but it was cool because I got to go to New York. Most of the voting happens just with ballots. So, mm -hmm. um, they just send you a ballot and you vote for your favorite artists. But I got invited to be on this, um, engineer craft committee they call it oh, okay uh, the the concept was they they wanted the best engineered album award to go to to get voted on by actual engineers uh, right so they would fly like a small group of engineers that were part of the academy you know to new york or there's a couple around the country but i went to new york and mm -hmm. we would spend a whole day listening to this stuff and, and you vote and it probably could have been done remotely but it was sure. nice to get a a fully paid trip to you know Manhattan. And yeah, spent spend a couple of days there, in a nice hotel, um, that kind of thing. And uh, so I did that for a few years, but you can only do it five years in a row. So I had to take a couple of years off. And oh, okay. I actually got asked to come back this past fall, but I, I had a I couldn't I had an engagement that I couldn't cancel. Oh, okay. And I couldn't work even the earliest flight the day of wouldn't have got me to the meeting in time and that's even kind of pushing it so i just couldn't do it but i'll, I'll probably go back to doing that um but you know there's honestly been some years where i've been too busy to vote for all the artists because it's a right. lot it's a big long ballot and yeah uh, but yeah it's nice you know and they do cool things you know they do this thing called music cares where if you have a, a medical issue or an addiction 
and you don't have insurance, as most musicians don't. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you know, insurance in the U.S. is tied to your employer, and if you're right. a band, that just doesn't really add up. So, anyways, Music Cares is a great organization because you you know you can qualify. I've known some close friends and people that have gotten help through Music Cares. So they do cool stuff like that, and they're really ramping things up now with uh, coronavirus because so many musicians are out of work. Right. Because um, uh, overall, it's a, it's a great organization to be a part of, if, and uh, there's benefits to it for sure. Yeah. And like I said, I really like what they do with Music Cares because um, they have the resources and funds to help people um, right. in the music industry specifically. Yeah. How, how many like voting members are there? Do you know off the top of your head? I honestly don't know. Um, Is it a lot? I, I don't know. I mean, I would say it's definitely in the thousands. Okay. I don't know if it's in the five-digit thousands or just four-digit thousands. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but I could also be way off. I, I don't even know where I would find such a number. But, yeah. Um, because there are, there's also, I think it's like $100 a year to be a member. And okay. you know, that, that goes to fund all their operations. So it's not. Right, right. You still pay a little, uh, a little bit of a fee, but you also have to qualify, and there's a couple right. of the hurdles. But yeah, overall, it's a good thing. So I still maintain my membership. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just sort of to wrap up here, where can people find out more about what you do and um, reach out and contact you if they do need something mastered or mixed? I think probably the studio website is the best place. It's just mysteryroommastering.com. It has some. It has a pretty cool feature that. Um, my friend Marty built for me called, it's like a project calculator. So you can just type in how many songs you have, oh. um, what formats you want to release it on, and some other details. And it gives you an, an exact cost right right there. And That's really cool. That allows you also to submit all the details because, you know, the other side of mastering is metadata. And mm. I have to know the exact song titles and exactly how you want your artist name to appear. Is it the word and or is it the ampersand? Right. Um, is this song title have a thing in print and capitalization all the stuff is important for for metadata so that allows you to submit all the information and then there's a bunch of resources about preparing for mastering and what to do after mastering and uh, all sorts of stuff on that website awesome um, so mystery of mastering and then there's a links to social all my social media there's links to playlists on your favorite streaming service of stuff i've worked on so great in one click you can just listen to that yeah that's awesome well thank you so much for for joining me and i appreciate it oh thanks for having me on it's it's been a pleasure and i'm glad we could connect yeah, yeah.